0: Hey, do you like weird movies? You do? Have you heard of Vinegar Syndrome? Find them online at www.vinegarsyndrome.com. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. They've got a simple three-step process that I call the three R's. Recover restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an amazingly large film archive consisting of thousands of 35 and 16 millimeter negatives and prints, and are actively finding films that are underappreciated, undervalued, and underseen. So many of their releases have never seen the light of day since VHS, and they're restoring them to all their glory. Some of these films do not have the right to look as good as they do, but they do. I'm looking at you, Corpse Grinders. Vinegar Syndrome has their own method of restoration where their goal is to recreate the theatrical experience as best as they can. With their own in-house lab, they scan, color grade, and restore each title personally. You'll never see any grain reduction and digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome is a very exciting label and we're proud to have them as a sponsor. They've been with us since the beginning and we love them for it. Check out their website today and pick up your copies of Rudy Raymore's Dolomite films. Just in time for the new Netflix movie Dolomite Is My Name starring Eddie Murphy. Also available is Hell Comes to Frogtown starring Rowdy Rowdy Piper, James Hong's The Vineyard, Pledge Night, Lust in the Dust starring Divine, Putney Swope, The Amityville Cursed Collection, and much, much more. Also, don't forget to pre-order your copy of Tammy and the T-Rex in glorious 4K Ultra High Definition or Blu-ray and The oh, Angel shit. Collection. Once again, be sure to visit them at www.vinegersyndrome.com and grab yourself something cool. Let them know your good friend Michael sent you.
1: Today's episode of the Shameless Picture Show is sponsored by Mill Creek Entertainment. Mill Creek is the industry leader when it comes to value-priced DVD and Blu-ray features and compilations. They have one of the largest catalogs out there, ranging from kids' programming, classic films and television, independent cinema, documentary, and Latino cinema. Hell, they even produce their own content in-house. Mill Creek is a trusted partner with some of our favorite studios, including Sony Pictures, Walt Disney Entertainment, Warner Brothers, CBS Home Entertainment, and many more. And the best part about Mill Creek is how easy they are to find. Mill Creek has deals with thousands of big box stores, grocery stores, drug stores, and practically any other retailer you can imagine. Trust me when I say I've owned plenty throughout my time as a collector without even realizing it. They're a name I can trust. Some of my favorite releases include Can't Hardly Wait, Night of the Living Dead, House on Haunted Hill from their Vincent Price collection, the complete series of Quantum Leap, the complete series of The Secret World of Alex Mack, and of course, you're the hunter from the future. Head over to www.millcreekent.com, that's millcreekent.com, and see what their collection has to offer.
0: I guarantee you'll find something great. And finally, introducing a new sponsor to the show, Aero Films. Aero Films is a leading independent entertainment distribution company established in 1991. Operating in the UK, the Republic of Ireland, United States of America, and Canada, Aero Films is dedicated to supporting upcoming and established filmmakers of dynamic new cinema and developing an viable slate of quality films. enjoy a lasting legacy across its award-winning branded labels channels and platforms. Arrow Films is also a leading restorer and theatrical distributor of classic and cult horror films including landmark titles such as the 25th anniversary reissue of Cinema Paradiso, the 15th anniversary reissue of Donnie Darko, and the 30th anniversary reissue of Hellraiser. These lovingly restored films are brought back into cinemas nationwide with brand new look campaigns with wide reaching distribution, including outdoor event status screenings at various cultural festivals, and as one off bookings in local repertory cinemas and film societies. Aerofilms is also widely considered to be the global market leader in the premium home entertainment market field but passionate and expert curation, aligned with state of the art, in house film restoration, resulting in highly sought after bespoke Blu ray editions of classic cult and horror films across its Aero Video and Aero Academy branded labels. Beloved by collectors, these ever expanding brands continue to delight their growing international fan base with a regular interactive live events, festival sponsorship, and retail stands presence. our offering extends to truly limited edition box sets as well as associated spin-off products now including books and vinyl records we are so happy to have aero video as one of our new sponsors you can find them at www.aerofilms.com while you're there be sure to pick up some cool titles for example they have the brand new American Werewolf in London collection which is beautiful the complete Sartana collection Hellraiser 1, 2, and 3. Toys Are Not for Children. A new edition of Al Pacino's Cruising. And let's not forget a limited edition copy of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and an upcoming limited edition copy of Robocop. There's so much more I can't even get into them all, but trust me when I say they're fantastic. And we couldn't be happier to have them. So, once again, Visit Aerofilms Films at www.aerofilms.com and check out all of their brands from Aero Video, Aero Academy, Aero Films, and Aero TV.
1: Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation The Shameless Picture Show.
0: Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of the Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Viers, and today I'm going to be reviewing some discs. You know, Blu-rays, DVDs, all that good shit. Actually, uh, the pile I have today is all exclusively Blu-rays, but, you know, regardless. Uh, sorry that it feels like it's been a while since I've done one of these. Maybe it's just me, but I feel like... I feel like it's been a while... I don't think it really has been, but um, I've started writing for ghastlygrinning.com, um, I've done a few reviews for them, um, I did th- Stephen Mena's Malevolence Trilogy, I wrote uh, a nice review for them for that, um, and then Arrow Video just re-released uh, Hellraiser as a single disc instead of part of the Scarlet Box, and... I reviewed that as well Um, so it feels like it has been a little bit but so anyways I'm just rambling on at this point Uh, it's also been a weird October I decided to take on two jobs so I've got a seasonal job for October working at my own haunt uh, Halloween Express selling costume and costume accessories plus working my day job trying to keep up with um the podcast all this other stuff so if episodes have been a little infrequent over october i apologize um it's not me losing interest in the show anyway i just i have a bad habit of biting off more than i can chew so um how have you guys been well i hope uh i can say that i've been very good not only but i've been getting some cool stuff in the mail um my birthday just passed in in september so i am now 29 uh i'm getting older and older every year um wrestling if you're a professional wrestling fan has been better than ever with uh, all elite wrestling having their weekly dynamite show um so we've you know we've got some good competition we've got nwa power we've got all elite wrestling dynamite and dark which is their side show Um, And I've gotten back into Major League Wrestling. I don't know why I'm talking about wrestling right now. Uh, This is a movie podcast, but I'm excited about things. And when I'm excited, I want to tell all of you what I'm excited about. Just like I got to see Elton John just very recently. Um, He came to town, I think it was the, the 19th. I was supposed to see him back in February, but he had to postpone the show. Uh, and Amanda got me tickets to his concert last September for my birthday. Uh, so finally getting to see him. If anyone saw me at the show, I was a blubbering wreck. Elton John is probably top five all time musicians for me, and would hands down be my desert island band. So that was a great moment for me.
2: Rappire be
1: half spin.
2: We both live without a sculptum. Then again, don't a man who makes potions in a challenge. Um
0: but I guess I should get on to the reviews. So today I've got four things well three things potentially a fourth that i'm going to review first off i've got two from vinegar syndrome one from a new sponsor arrow video and potentially one from milk creek we'll see how long this goes uh let's dive right into it this one's one i've had for a while and i've been teasing it on the show for a while whether or not you realize it. It is the third installment of what I've been referring to as the unofficial blood trilogy that is blood beat, blood hook, and a cocktail of vengeance and lust blood harvest. Uh, I've been hinting at it on the intro for the show for a while, and I don't I don't know. It's now this fall it felt like I should finally sit down and watch it, so Give me a second, and I will read the back of the box. Blood Harvest. Had to go for like my E. Y. Roth Thanksgiving voice. Jill has just returned home from college to the rural farm community where she grew up, only to discover that her parents have mysteriously vanished. Learning that her father, a banker, has become the local parish for overseeing land foreclosures on local farmers. Jill quickly becomes the victim of a series of strange and increasingly depraved assaults. With only her childhood friend and former lover Gary and his mentally unstable brother Mervo, played by Tiny Tim, willing to believe her, Jill begins to fear for her life. All the while, a stalking masked killer is abducting, torturing, and brutally killing those closest to Jill. An unrelentingly grim and perverse cycle thriller, Blood Harvest, mixes gruesome throat slashings, copious amounts of TNA, and an unhinged supporting performance from music sensation Tiny Tim. Long available only in heavily cut and gray market editions, Vinegar Syndrome proudly presents Blood Harvest on Blu ray, fully uncut. Uncensored and newly restored in 4K from its recently discovered original camera negative.
3: Marvelous Merville. <laughs> my crazy brother. Uh, He's getting worse every day. Marvelous he hardly takes the Marvel. makeup off anymore. At
2: your service, Marvelous Mervil, that's my name, and I'll do my best to entertain you with magic and laughter, because that's my game. <laughs> I wanna make the whole world laugh, even if the laugh's on me. I paint a smile on my face, there for everyone to see. So put a smile on your face, like your old friend Mervo. Whenever you're feeling alone and blue, like marvelous Mervo, you'll soon discover a smile can do wonderful things. Night when the mask is off, I look at myself. I may make the world think I'm happy, but I can't hide the truth to myself. Whatever happens, I must go on acting, acting, acting. Be a polyarcho love.
0: So, what harvest is. It's an unusual film. Um, so I'm a f- I'm from Wisconsin. Those of you who are listening to this show who uh, aren't aware, uh, I'm from Wisconsin. And Wisconsin doesn't have a lot of films shot here. Like there's films, I guess, that take place here. But to have movies that were actually shot here, is there's few and far between unless you're a local filmmaker. So, any time that there is a locally produced or shot horror film, I have to chase it down. Like, not only do I love regional cinema anyways, but since it's close to home, it's great for me. Um, I love being able to watch something that was shot in the 70s or 80s or maybe even 90s and look at it and try to figure out where things were shot, if I can find that location. And with the three that I mentioned, uh, Blood Beat, Blood Hook and Blood Harvest they're all in the middle of nowhere Wisconsin or farther from Milwaukee so it's harder for me to do but still it's fun for me Um, Blood Harvest was probably my least favorite of the three Wisconsin blood films that Vinegar Syndrome brought out Um, Blood Hook is definitely the most fun but I think I like Blood Beat the best uh, I also like how there's kind of a progression with these films. Blood Beat is very much a Christmas winter film. Blood Hook is a summer film. And Blood Harvest is a fall film. We just got to get one that takes place in the spring and we're all set. My biggest issue with the film is... <sighs> I guess I I just didn't care. I didn't... The film was rapey. And um, for... No reason and it's kinda of hard to justify a reason why a film should be rapey to begin with, but it was just kind of thrown in and was perverse for the sake of being perverse. Like there's a scene where our lead character uh her name is Jill, um, where she's sleeping at night and she's apparently knocked out so cold, like she's sleeping so heavy that when some dude sneaks into her house and removes her clothing and takes a bunch of lurid photos of her. She's never she never once questions it. She I think she's even tied up in the scene too and she's just you know blissfully sleeping. It's like ugh, like we find out spoiler spoiler right now. I'm going to spoil the big secret at the end of the film. So if you were really looking forward to Blood Harvest and don't want to hear about it, please skip ahead a little bit because I'm gonna spoil it right now we find out in blood harvest that Jill's ex-boyfriend is the killer they they kind of they're trying to lead you on to make you think that Mervo uh the um, Gary's brother is actually the killer because he's crazy and weird and you know tiny Tim is he's the star of this film so it's like oh maybe it's tiny Tim maybe he's the killer maybe the great mervo is the killer but it's Gary and he's jealous that jill left that jill's got a boyfriend that they didn't make it together um she's very much friend zoned at him and it's, i don't like using that term but even she says oh gary you're like a brother to me so i guess brother zoned it brother zoned i don't know and we get the the vibe that he's gone he's gone he's kind of gone crazy you know um that if I'm remembering correctly, it's been a week or two since I've watched it. um Mervyn Gary's parents die. Gary's somehow involved in that, and the entire situation of seeing his parents die dead sorry, uh has fucked him up in the head that combined with his obsession with Jill like I can see where. Um, sorry, what's the filmmaker's name? Bill Rabane where he's going, why he thought, oh, people will buy this, that he's rapey and inappropriate towards Jill. And I feel like if you really had to make the movie that way, there's ways you could have done it without it being so gross. I don't know. Um, I know there's horror fans out there that are like, oh, you... you you can't like the genre if you you know, or if you're gonna nitpick things like this. And that's probably true. But there's so much else to the genre but rape and grossness that, you know, like And, like, I'm not a prude. Like, I'm not opposed to nudity. I'm not opposed to having sex in a movie or whatever. But, like, there's a general creepiness to it. And maybe that's the point. Maybe that's what Bill Orbain's going for. And if he is fucking spades to him, it's just not what I really get into. What I did like from the film was Tiny Tim. The man is fucking great in this film. I don't think he even realizes how good he is because he's. Tiny Tim's a fascinating musician because I've i can't figure out um if it's all an act if he's really like this and this definitely is tiny tim plain tiny tim but there are these elements to mervo that you really get the feeling that oh shit like he's acting he's playing a part um so, he's really fucking good. And if you're going to track down this film for any reason, it should be for him. Or if you're like me and you're a Wisconsin horror film enthusiast. Um, but Tiny Tim is fucking fantastic in this film. He sings uh, these really creepy songs throughout, as he should. Uh, he has like this Jack and Jill go up the hill like riff that he does, and he changes it to Gary and Jill. And, you know, Tiny Tim's got such an aesthetic about him that i'm fascinated by him i really am um so yeah tiny tim is grape (laughs) grape tiny tim was great gary is a creep the all the music is really strange too because it almost doesn't feel like it fits it feels like it's supposed to be for a different movie altogether and i want to look into a little bit more to the composer and uh you know it almost feels like it was scored either not watching the movie or scored before the movie uh, and it just adds this really interesting quality to it. And the music... Sorry, the music. The movie's got this magical realism to it where it's not quite a fantasy film at all. It's not a fantasy film at all, but it's not. It's definitely not grounded in reality. There's just this general weirdness to it. Part of it being Tiny Tim dressing like a clown. He, His character, Merv, he has to he's so traumatized by his past that he can't be himself he has to be the magnificent mervo so you have this cl- you have this clown running around and scaring people and not intentionally he's not trying to be a fucking creeper he's just a man in a clown clown makeup who's just roaming around a farm uh the relationship between gary and jill when it's not weird has just got this interesting quality to it and i don't know it's 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 I'm a sucker for these homegrown DIY horror films, anyways. But then, with the music combined with the visuals, it's just kind of magical and weird. And I kept getting like town that dreaded sundown vibes from it, partially because the killer, partially because the way it was shot. But yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, like I said, I'm gonna keep harping on it that Gary is skeezy. He's he's very much like that incel type character who thinks that every woman's against him. And no one likes the nice guy, that fucking type of person. So I, I truly hate the character of Gary in this movie. And maybe next time I watch it, like I'll have to watch it with the perspective of how much I hate him. Maybe it'll change the viewing for me. Um, but it's a, it's a psychological family drama. and it's not scary there are some in there are some kills in it they're like the, the back of the box says some throat slashings and such but it's definitely a psychological family drama jill's trying to figure out what happened to her family and then we have the dynamic between mervo and gary and there's unease and tension between them uh and you kind of find out more about that throughout the film it's 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 a fascinating film it's just not one that i really liked um i'm not gonna say i won't return to it i probably will actually but um out of the three wisconsin films it was definitely my least favorite but someone out there is gonna love this film i know it uh i'm gonna apologize now if you hear the sound of whimpering it's our puppy uh, vincent I had to put him in his kennel just because when I'm up here recording, I'm the only one home. We're still getting used to potty training him. He won't go to the bathroom in his kennel. But if I'm not watching him, he might go to the bathroom on the floor downstairs. So when I am when I can't be watching him, I have to put him in the kennel. And since I'm recording with you guys, in case you hear the sound of whimpering, it's just our puppy. He won't be along, alone for very long. I can promise that. Um, but anyways, the special features on here include newly scanned and restored in 4k from its 16 millimeter original camera negative, uh, a brand new commentary track with producer and co-writer Leszek Brzezinski. Uh, this one in quotations, every critic is going to butcher it. An archival interview with tiny Tim about blood harvest, um, so the, these two go to hand in hand. So every critic is going to butcher the interview. And then there's also a tiny Tim performance and raw interview footage from Niagara Falls from September 3rd, 1987. This is really fascinating because tiny Tim is like just hanging out at the circus. Cause that's where he's performing right now. And these lifelong fans are interviewing him and he's just chugging like Sprite from directly from the bottle and he's just really wired up. And then you get this—you get an f- entire performance of Tiny Tim at the circus. It's fascinating. It's—it's it's not enlightening in any way. His the interview is whatever. But getting an entire Tiny Tim performance is awesome. Like that's worth the price of admission right there if you're a Tiny Tim fan. And then there's also a booklet with an essay by Tiny Tim biographer, Justin A. Martell. Justin A. Martell, I know a little bit uh, through my time working with Troma. He was a producer of Troma. I met him at the Cannes Film Festival. I I threw a little bit of money into his film, Megafoot, uh, which is about a cybernetic Bigfoot that I don't think ever got made. Um, I ran to him a couple times at Troma Dance. I know him vaguely. Um, but he is a Tiny Tim biographer, he's been out there doing research, they put out a biography, I think he's trying to do a documentary, anything you need to know about Tiny Tim, Justin Martel knows, Um, there's also reversal cover artwork, and English subtitles, I forgot to mention the commentary track with co-writer Leszek Brzezinski, it's pretty interesting because he's the closest thing we're ever going to get to a fly in the wall of what it was like working on that film. And he even tells a story on there about how the whole idea of of Merv Mervo wearing a clown outfit happened kind of by accident. Uh, um,
2: so can you tell me about, uh, sort of to just jump right into it, how did you first meet Tiny Tim?
4: Um, That was uh, quite a story. Um, I uh, co-wrote the script but I did most of the writing on the script and um, I had been wrestling with uh, the Tiny Tim character because I felt it needed a little bit of spice and Tiny was due to arrive at the studio a couple of days later. I went back to the script and I thought, you know what? Wouldn't it be kind of spooky and interesting if he were a children's clown performer? But he never takes the makeup off. He always has the makeup on, which makes him a singularly uh, strange person. And um, so Tiny came to the studio, and I had been rewriting his character to reflect this idea of of him as a clown. And I went into Tiny's room, and he was um, uh, unpacking. And, of course, he called me Mr. Leszek because Tiny called everybody that way. I was Mr. Leszek. He was tiny, but he was actually very large. He was over six foot and quite imposing, and he wore makeup all the time. And um, he said, oh, Mr. Leszek, I uh, don't know if this is going to work or not, but I suddenly thought that there might be some use for this in the film, and he pulled out of his suitcase a clown costume. And he said to me, "I I entertain children sometimes, and I wear this uh, costume." I said, "Tiny, uh, were you psychic?" I said, "I had just had the thought a couple of days ago that you, as a clown, would be really an interesting character." He said, "Well, Mister Lesher, we can use this in the film," and he wears his own clown suit in the film.
0: So they both had the same instinct. So there's lots of stories that like that about the making of this. Unfortunately, Bill Rabane wasn't involved with this. Um, I don't know the whole story, and I'm not gonna pretend like I do. But I believe Bill Rabane is um, is kind of feuding with Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, he believes they put out Blood Harvest without his permission but i guess the story that i've heard is that he doesn't actually own the rights to this film so the company he gave permission to to put it out couldn't put it out um where vinegar syndrome actually went to the right holder rights holders i i don't know the whole situation i'm going to keep stressing that because i don't want to piss anyone off i don't want to piss off bill rebain i don't want to piss off vinegar syndrome but that's just the story i remember hearing I just did a uh, quick Google search on Facebook. If you search Bill Rabain vinegar syndrome, you can find not only Bill Rabain's profile, like his, his Facebook page talking about how he, he believes that vinegar syndrome is putting these movies out without his permission. Cease and desist. And you can find a bunch of stuff about it. Like I guess I don't know the whole entire situation, but it's a shame they couldn't come to terms and we could have gotten Bill Rabane on this disc, but what are you going to do? Next up, I've got a little movie called Hell Comes to Frogtown. The back of the box reads, In a post-nuclear holocaust wasteland, Sam Hell, played by Rowdy Piper, is like most other survivors, a nomadic scavenger roaming the bombed-out remnants of the world for food and survival gear. But Sam is also harboring a major secret that even he isn't aware of. He's the last fertile man on Earth. As unexpected pregnancies are discovered, the remnants of the government decide to capture him and, with the aid of scientist Spangle, fit him with a secure chastity belt to ensure his virility is used only when needed. After learning of a group of supposed virgins who are being held captive by frog mutant savages, Sam is sent on on a rescue mission to free the women and then, of course, impregnate them. Is he up for the job? You bet. Dot, 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 dot. And only in the 80s hybrid of post-apocalyptic sci-fi weirdness, cynical humor, and horror touches, director Donald G. Jackson's Hell Comes to Frogtown is every bit as crazy as the title implies. Co-starring Sandal Bergman from Conan the Barbarian, Rory Calhoun from Angel, and featuring a supporting performance from Nicholas Worth from Don't Answer the Phone. Vendigas presents Hell Comes to Frogtown on Blu-ray in North America for the first time in a brand new 4K restoration.
2: Reflect
0: for a moment on the art of cinema.
2: Think of a motion picture like The Last Emperor and the nine Academy Awards it so richly deserved. Consider the profound emotional experience of a truly great film. Then forget it, sweetheart. Yes, better blow it out your exhaust pipe, cinema lover, because here comes fun with hair on it. Oh, that's disgusting. You're gonna see the biggest piece of shattering entertainment that ever molested your sensibilities.
1: That sounds great.
2: Want a plot? Here it is. It's the end of the 20th century, and mankind has blown its wad. <coughs> the fate of humanity rests in the groin of one man.
5: Their leader, Commander
2: Toady, has kidnapped some pilgrims who wandered into their territory. We're gonna get him out, and then you're gonna get him pregnant. Yes, if you want a brilliant film, you can go right to... We're going to Frogtown. Hell comes to (laughs) Frogtown. Starring wrestling superstar, Rowdy Roddy Piper. (laughs) Move over, Mr. Mel Gibson and Mr. Robert De Niro. Here comes acting talent and sensitivity like you've never seen. You are one weird dude. And speaking of talent, Turn green, Ms. Meryl Streep. Here's Sandal Bergman, the exquisite star of Red Sonia and Conan the Barbarian. Hell comes to Frogtown, a story of mutant sex and people like you and me. It's hot, it's wet, and it's bad.
0: It's hell comes to frog town i fucking loved this movie i had i i've vaguely heard of it um because i'm a pro wrestling fan i talked about it at the beginning of the episode and i love rowdy Roddy piper um i first time i first heard about this movie uh surprisingly very recently um re- professional wrestling podcast we watch wrestling with hosts um vince arville matt mccarthy Matt McCarthy, who is also a a movie nerd, was talking about it on an episode about how he had just seen it and thought it was the crazy one of the craziest films he had ever seen. So that in, intrigued my interest. And then for some after that, like it's some sort of weird Facebook algorithm. I feel like everyone was talking about it, even people who aren't wrestling fans, people who probably don't listen to that podcast. Just a lot of things came out from from that, and then I started hearing about it and. i I really like i really like rowdy roddy piper um so when i found this was coming out i got really excited Uh, and like i said i loved it it was it's it make an amazing double feature with fury road because they have a very similar plot um and i mean that in a good way um It's, I guess I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. So like it's as the back of the box said, we find out Sam Hell is the most fertile man left in the world. And, you know, pretty much he gets out of going to jail by helping the government. And, and he's, they're going to go rescue these women and have him impregnate them so they can essentially help the human race.
1: Is this accurate?
0: Mr. Hellman, I can
1: understand why you're so popular with the ladies. You've left a string of pregnancies everywhere you've been. So far, You have the highest spermatozoan count we've ever tested.
2: Must have been all that fiber I ate when I was a kid.
0: I'm authorized to offer you a clean slate. All charges dropped. Now, MedTech's main assignment is to locate and impregnate fertile women in the wastelands.
1: Now, we need potent young men in the fields to assist in this great work. Men who can take care of themselves, who know the territory, who can perform under difficult conditions.
0: Do you feel up to it? Are you serious? Well, maybe you'd rather we sent you back to Devlin. On the other hand, I've always been a patriot. I know it sounds crazy. It's a matriarchal society at this point. And if you can't create children, you can't really continue the world. Um, so P- Piper is not really super invested in Piper's character, Sam Hell. is not really super invested in doing this, but it gets him out of going to jail. And he tries to escape at one point, uh, And he finds out that his chastity belt is rigged to blow up if he gets too far out there. So he decides to go and actually help them. They go to this place called Frogtown, which I shouldn't be surprised that there's frog-shaped mutants in this town, but, you know, because the title tells me so, but fuck, I was. Uh, the makeup effects are great. The action's great. Rowdy Roddy Piper in this movie is so legitimately sincere um, that he's really charming. Like all the acting in this movie is actually really fucking good. So we have like Sek Veryl. she plays like this military chick who's who's um, who's essentially the bodyguard of the group. She drives a pink, looks like Volkswagen van of some sort with a machine gun mounted on the top of it, and she looks a lot like Mila Jovovich in the Resident Evil movies. And I don't know, honestly, to me it doesn't. It seems like it's too too similar for it to be a, a surprise um you got sandel bergman who plays uh dr spangler she's really good um there's not really a bad performance in this movie looks like i said the makeup's great it's it's very breezy it's very easy to watch um i just unap- unapologetically love the film because it's so weird and anytime that i felt i'd get bored something off the wall would happen and i'd become invested again Um, This was definitely one of my favorite discoveries I've ever gotten from Vinegar Syndrome. And just telling people about this movie has convinced them to go out and buy it. And like a good friend of mine, uh, Kyle who a lot of the stuff that Vinegars puts out, I don't think he'd be really interested in, but he has seen this film, also loves it, and he wants to go out and pick up a copy. I feel like this movie's important if you love post-apocalyptic movies. It's essentially Fallout. That's just how the movie looks and feels. Um, I think you're going to love Hell Comes to Frogtown. Um, It's a very simple story. There's not a whole lot going on, but it's definitely worth your time. (sighs) Anyways, special features include newly scanned and restored in 4K from its 35mm interpositive. Audio commentary with director Donald G. Jackson and writer slash producer Randall Frakes. Uh I was only listened to a couple minutes of this, but there it's fascinating. Uh Donald G. Jackson definitely he's kind of got like this uh, failed upwards type of failed was the wrong word like he 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 kind of came from nothing uh happened to find a success with a wrestling movie called I Like to Hurt People which is a pseudo documentary and it made a mon- made him money and it just kind of his career kept progressing until he got to make Hell Comes to Frogtown which was this biggest budget biggest budget movie and they talk a little bit about that uh in the commentary um mean and green an inner video interview with randall frakes which um was also really fascinating because randall pretty randall frakes pretty much runs you through everything uh that you need to know about the film everything like he beginning to end story if you only have time for one feature this one's really good because he you know tells you everything grappling with Green Gargantuans, a video interview with lead actor Roddy Piper. Roddy Piper's dead, so I'm gonna. Based on the look of this, I can kind of tell this is a uh, archival deal. But it's, you know, Roddy's great. Amphibian Armageddon, a video interview of Bra- uh, actor Brian Frank. Creature Feature Creator,
3: a video interview with FX artist Steve Wang. The way I approached the creature design was. In the script, Commander Toadie had four arms, and that was a big surprise in the story. And you know, Don had told me basically he wanted to do Planet of the Apes with frogs. So um, what actually inspired the design work was there was an episode of Spectrum Man. a Japanese superhero TV show that came out in the 70s that I was really uh, into because there was a whole little village of frog people in it. And I just thought that was just the most amazing looking thing, and they were a little crude back then, but they really inspired me so I wanted to do sort of a modern, more realistic version of that. So, using that kind of as a base as a starting point, that's how I designed all the frogs. I'm a huge fan of all the Japanese superhero stuff and and monsters and, and the classic universal, you know, um, monsters. This one, I didn't quite see it, I mean, aside from the, the fact that I was inspired by by, you know, Spectrum Man, the frog people in Spectrum Man, uh, this one was, you know, I didn't even really see it as a monster movie. It was It was kind of a, a Uh, kind of a a comedy well I mean it was a comedy but it was kind of a sexual comedy you know and uh, and I think part of of that is what I think made it a lot of fun because no one took anything serious on set they're there to try to make a fun movie and have a good time doing it
0: Um, he talks about how he was kind of brought on and didn't even know if he'd be able to do a lot of the effects that they were asking for so it's just I like it. I don't know. <laughs> a lot of the I I I'm repeating myself, a lot of these feature the movie's better than the features. The features are good and if you want to know more about it, they're fantastic for that reason, but none of them are gonna be really like earth shattering. Uh, but they're still all really good. There's an extended scene, pl- scene plus an the original theatrical trailer, reversal cover artwork, and English SDH subtitles. And this movie's not only in stereo, but it's in the good stereo, stereo, where you get left, right, and a center. So it comes in 3.0, which no movies do, and I wish more would. Next up, we have our first Arrow title for this podcast. It's called Toys. not for children sexuality abound in this twisted 1970 tale of a young woman whose severe daddy issues send her on an unforgettably bleak downward spiral yearning for the love of her absentee father jamie inhabits an infantilized world surrounded by toys including those which her wayward pops bizarrely continues to send her Unable to consummate her new marriage with dashing colleague Charlie, Jamie's chance encounter with aging sex worker Pearl leads her into the murky world of prostitution, where her most disturbing erotic fantasies begin to play out. Grim, quirky, and strangely affecting in equal measure, Stanley H. Brasloff's toys are not for children— is a truly one-of-a-kind effort from the heyday of American exploitation independence building to a haunting and devastating climax that lingers long after the credits roll.
2: Isn't she
3: precious? Isn't she cute? What do you
2: want to be when you grow up?
3: When
4: I grow up, I want to work in a toy shop. Ladies and gentlemen, We are about to show you scenes of an upcoming feature presentation. Its impact is so powerful and subject matter so different that we chose the unconventional way to make this presentation. Be prepared to handle shattering situations and learn what fear means to some.
2: Why can't you be reasonable? Reef! How many times have I told you I can't even stand to look at your face? Mommy and Daddy don't like me. That's why I like toys. They make me happy. And Jamie
4: met Charlie.
2: Oh, uh, who do I see about a job?
4: You're hired. And they work together in a toy store. And then, with this ring, I thee wed. With this ring, I thee wed.
2: They're no damn good. Take my word for it, Jamie, they'll hurt you. They'll hurt you. Oh, Charlie, I can't.
5: Is that why you married me?
2: Even in
4: this age of permissiveness, toys are not for children will shock you make you wonder where good ends and bad begins. Whether or not there really is a difference between the two. Only
2: you'll be in your toy balloon world. Oh, no one can have you.
4: Toys are not for You're children, is. Scared. Toys are not for children, an experience you will not forget.
0: I got really excited for this movie um, because two film critics that I really like are in, are featured on this disc. So we have Kat Ellinger and um, Stephen Thrower, who are two critics I really like, and I thought, well, if they like this, I'm going to give it a shot. And after going through the disc i now see well i can understand what they're getting from the film i just think when it comes down to it the movie wasn't for me um because i feel like it's having an identity crisis uh the film's an exploitation film but not really it's an exploitation film in in the extent that there's a lot of nudity um and that's over the top it Um, But it definitely treats itself more as an experimental art film because it's got a really unique way of using time and space and editing where um, it'll unapologetically cut from scenario to scenario, situation to situation, and will even cut to different time periods so you'll have two characters talking about their first time meeting and it'll just abruptly cut to that but then cut to later on in the movie and then cut back to another thing and it doesn't tell you when or where the movie is going or taking place and it's just kind of like this weird drug dream um throughout the film so it's it's fascinating i just i hate to say it i was just kind of bored um, I really wanted to like this film because it's kind of got a similar plotline to the pornography film *Mascara* that I reviewed a couple bonus episodes ago, that I thought had a lot of potential, um, and I thought well, maybe this will be the the straight version of that. And it didn't work for me. And like I said, the film is kind of having an identity crisis. It's kind of an experimental film. It's kind of a um, an exploitation film. It looks and feels like a porno but any a lot of times when you're right about to get to the sex it cuts it cuts away from it um but then it's also a drama and there's there are some legitimately well-written scenes and the acting is all pretty good for being no name actors or uh relatively low level actors um so I guess let me let me back up a little bit Jamie as the back of the box said is a young woman who definitely still acts like a child. Um, the opening scene of the movie is very scandalous where she's uh, humping a toy soldier, like this big, um, like almost human-sized toy soldier, and is calling out for her father as she does it. Her mother, who is sexually repressed, comes in and screams at her and makes her feel bad. Um, and then we get the we we get that Jamie is is struggling throughout her life. She's very blissfully unaware. She's very happy being a child. Uh, she works at a toy store with her boss, who is really fucking sweet. Uh, I kind of love the bo- the character of her boss. And then her, I don't even want to say boyfriend Charlie because he he shows interest in her. She doesn't show interest back. But then they end up getting married um but the toy store is where she meets Pearl who is once again as the back of the box says an aging sex worker and they kind of strike up a friendship because uh Pearl is just is just really amused by Jamie's childlike perspective and this this like whimsy that she's got about everything and this is where the film like I feel like I almost feel like I want to rewatch it because there was, like, the, like I said, there's this weird drug like quality to the film where it became really hard to follow. Where Charlie and Jamie end up getting married, and Charlie wants to consummate their marriage as you do, but Jamie's just more than happy playing with toys and watching TV and is not interested. That is until she starts hanging out more with Pearl and starts taking an interest in becoming a sex worker. And the reason there's a disconnect for me there is, you know, a character who's showing no interest in sex well, then wants to become a sex worker, and I get it, she, she's she got like this this daddy fantasy that she's not able to play out, but there's never a scene of her trying to play this out with Charlie, and I feel like had there been, and then Charlie turned her down, and that's what leads her into thinking, well, if he won't have sex with me in the way that I'm hoping someone else i feel like it would have just connected it a little bit better because it just it feels so random and abrupt when she approaches pearl about it and pearl is very much against and it's just trying to protect her because this is a hard life but pearl's roommate potentially pimp potentially boyfriend we don't quite know what they are is trying to hook up with jamie and wants to pimp her out and it becomes a whole thing and then it leads to one of the weirdest fucking endings I've seen in a long time. And, you know, it's not just about her trying to become a sex worker. It's about her trying to reconnect with her father because she finds out he's around. He still sends her toys all the time. Um, So she she wants to eventually meet him and see if having him back in her life will help fulfill her um it's it's weird like i'm glad i saw it because it's definitely a time capsule of its uh, of of cinema uh these exploitation films that were and this is exactly the type of film that i usually go for where it's not necessarily in terms of uh of content but where you have these low budget borderline exploitation films that have this artfulness quality to them like I like finding the art in trash as opposed to finding the trash in art um and I think that's why I I still appreciate it even though I didn't really enjoy it so I I'm still really glad I got to see it it just didn't really work for me unfortunately but the reason this disc is if this is your type of film because once again this might be something you'd really enjoy it de- like it's. It, i think this film is going to have his audience the special features on this movie are amazing so special features are brand new 2k restoration from its original film elements high definition blu-ray 1080p presentation original uncompressed mono audio uh, optional english subtitles for the death and hard of hearing Brand new audio commentary with Kat Ellinger and Heather Drain.
5: Also the theme tune, which we didn't get a chance to talk about on the credits there. I mean, that's another interesting little connection there. Because it seems to be just a a one-off, doesn't it? Even though there's some really interesting music in this film.
3: Oh, the music
5: in this film is, is amazing. I mean, you have the haunting, that haunting theme song, Lonely Am I, uh,
1: which was uh, by T.L. Davis and written by Kathy Lynn. Uh, T.L. Davis is possibly a pseudonym, could not find a lot of information about him. Uh, Kathy Lynn pretty actually has a little bit of a backup career, though. Uh, she was a songwriter who penned songs for artists like Dion, Connie Francis, and Etta James, So, which is uh, nothing to sneeze at.
5: I think that's the most interesting thing about this period of American independence, though. I mean, you get a similar thing in European independence. But in American independence, it seems especially difficult to track people down. I think, especially in the case of Italian film, people were quite open about pseudonyms and, you know, you had a lot of Italian directors who would work under pseudonyms to sound more American. It was all very open and people knew who people were. But in this period of American film, in the exploitation cinema, you get, especially with actresses, you get a lot of actresses who are obviously working under pseudonyms, some who moved into hardcore. I'm not saying Marcia Forbes did, but would work under different names and even directors and producers would be obscured and so it's so difficult to dig anything up on these people and they weren't the sort of people to be written about or celebrated or interviewed it was all done in in this very strange obscured way so even now Even now we live in information overload, it's difficult to turn things up on these people.
0: Uh, They do a podcast together called Hell's Bells. And before that, I believe Kat Ellinger did a podcast called The Daughters of Darkness only reason I say I believe, because I remember I used to listen to it, uh, it's no longer available on I, on Apple Podcasts, so I, I just can't double-check the name, but that's where I first became a fan of Cat Ellinger, plus she pops up on the projection booth once in a while, and I just think she's um, a great mind for horror. Heather Drain I like as well, I'm just a little bit more familiar with Kat Ellinger. Um, And then this next feature is great, especially because, like, this is the type of stuff that I love. Like, I keep saying that, but, like, um, low budget or no budget filmmakers who are prolific in that, that they've made a lot of stuff when there's not a lot of information about. I love when we're able to dig things up. So, this next one is called Fragments of Stanley Brasloff. Um, and it says Nightmare USA, author Stephen Thrower on toys are not for children, and the career of director Stanley H. Brasloff.
2: Strange, twisted sort of psychodrama quality to it. It's actually, given the very low budget, um, and given the risk, the, cons- the constraints of the time, and and given that I don't think anybody is exactly uh, a major player, uh, it's it's pretty good. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of Pretty good acting in it, really, and you know at times, although the script doesn't dazzle, uh, it's it's pretty twisted and pretty dark and gets to some sort of uncomfortable places. So you know, even though it's not um, kind of polished and uh, honed and uh, psychologically penetrating uh, in in the way that you might have expected from. You know, kind of some of the bigger players at the time. It's still, it's
0: still a, a solid piece of work, I think, really. Um, so Stephen Thrower, who I also love, uh, has done the research. And while Stephen Brasloff, uh, sorry, Stanley Brasloff, only made two films, he talks about what got him into making films, his life before that, his influences, and I feel like listening. If I listen to the entire commentary with Cat Ellinger and Heather Drain and then after this feature, if I'm ever going to truly appreciate this film, it's going to be asked after listening to them, because even just Steven thrower talks about it in a no nonsense way about the way that Stanley Braslov makes his movies. He doesn't go for stylistic flourishes. He's very much like he's very much framed the drama. He's a very utilitarian filmmaker where the camera is the cameras there, but he doesn't put a lot of thought into how it's made, how it's, how it moves. I don't know, just hearing Stephen Thor talking about it. It's like okay, I can definitely see that. Uh, the camera is not what makes the film unique; it's the editing. Um, this all this next feature is also great: "Dirty Dolls: Femininity, Perversion, and Play," a brand new video essay by Alexandra Heiler Nicholas, exploring the twisted history that links feminine sexuality with dolls and toys. And she also opens the film up with uh, this video essay up talking about this, describing beat for beat. A scene from Todd Haynes' film Carol that stars Mooney Ra- Mo- Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett and talks and is like, Oh, you might have seen this scene and beat for beat what happens. And then pretty much says, um, You may be thinking, Oh, that's from the Todd Haynes movie Carol, but no, it's actually from Toys Are Not for Children. So, and then she starts to tie it in about the, the, uniquenesses and the art house of this film and it's it's fascinating i've i've started watching just a couple minutes of it it's about it's about a half hour um but it's i love video essays and i wish more companies would put them on their discs so this is a great this is great and they also have the uh the original theme song lonely am i newly transferred from the original 45 rpm vinyl single Uh, Stanley H. Brassloff Trailer Gallery, Reversible Sleeve featuring original and newly commissioned artwork by the Twins of Evil. So that's Arrow Videos. Toys are not for children. And uh, I guess I'm going to do another option. We're we're not running too long. Uh, Originally, I was unsure if I was going to do this one now or save it for another episode. But um, finally, from Mill Creek, who is a big part of the reason why this is, I've been dubbing it Year of the Kaiju. We've got Ultra Q. They sent me both Ultra Q and the first season of Ultraman, um, but I've been I haven't gotten to Ultraman yet. I've been plowing through season one or series one of Ultra Q, uh, and I'm maybe about halfway, something like that. Um, and I just had to talk about it because I've been super enjoying it. So, for the ne- uh, the back of the box says, for the next 30 minutes, your eyes will leave your body and arrive in this strange moment in time. The classic series that launched the Ultraman franchise, now available in in high definition. After co-creating the iconic movie monsters Godzilla, Rodan, and Mothra for for Toho Studios, special effects director Eiji Tsuyuburaya launched his own company, Tsuyuburaya Productions. The first production under his new label was Ultra Q, a 28-episode series that brought the theatrical specter, spectacles *Suburaya* had become known for to television. The black-and-white sci-fi drama focused on Manichi Shimpo journalist Yuriko Edugawa, played by Hiroko Sakurai from Ultraman, Hashikawa Airlines pilot-slash-SF writer, science-fiction writer Jun Majumet, played by Kenji Sahara, and his co-pilot, Aipi Tagawa, played by Yoshihiko Saijo, who partnered to investigate mysterious events occurring in and around Japan. These phenomenon often involved aliens and giant monsters, many of whom could return in future Ultraman shows and movies one of the most expensive TV programs produced in Japan up to this point, Ultra Q was a rating smash that paved the way for Tsuburaya's production's first color series, Ultraman. This show is fucking cool because it's Twilight Zone meets Kaiju, which is amazing. And the effects are great, which is what I like about it. Tsuburaya wanted to put monsters on television. So he got together and made this show. And from what I've come to understand is that he actually got together um, that the the producers of Twilight Zone actually licensed the show to show in the U.S., which is kind of cool. Um, I don't know what all I'm going to have to say about it other than I fucking like it. It's 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 very much it is definitely a monster of the week type show um it's even got the amazing opening and extra narration by an omnipresent narrator who kind of defines what we've just seen all the there's a there's definitely a theme and a lesson in every single episode and they usually have to do with um nature understanding nature um and um not fucking up the planet which is kind of (laughs) what godzilla was about um, but what I like about it, unlike, say, the Twilight Zone, is it's a little bit more like the X-Files. Because we have these continuing characters who come in every episode and who aren't going to investigate the supernatural. So, um, Yuriko, she is a, a photojournalist. Uh, she's always about trying to get the scoop, trying to um be there first so she can see what's going on and i have to say she takes it all with great stride it's almost like these characters live in the world of godzilla because they're not nearly as blown away by these um these crazy monsters as they should be and then you got june who is uh, a pilot and he also writes science fiction on an amateur level they talk about it a little bit throughout the show um and uh, Yuru- uh yuriko sometimes gives him shit which is kind of great because he's like oh how can a person who writes so much science fiction uh not believe what we're seeing and he just kind of rolls his eyes and everything and then i is my favorite character he's just, he's kind of the comic relief and he's the goofy guy um, and he, oh, he's always making mistakes, but I love him. Uh, and then they also have uh, a professor friend. I don't remember his name, but he he's a he's a scientist, and he ch- sometimes assists them with what they're trying to figure out. Um, and if I had a complaint about the show, is I almost feel like it could work better as an hour. Um, Because they have such a great, they always have a great build to the monster, you know. Um, So let's let's use the first episode as an example. Um, It's just the episode that I have strongest in my brain right now. So the monster, the the show begins with them digging a tunnel through the mines, and as they're digging, they they hit down a wall and they discover another tunnel. They're like, "Whoa, where'd this other tunnel come from?" um and they spend like a good 5 10 maybe even 15 minutes talking about this and trying to figure out where it is or what it's coming from and they have all these different theories and then there's this one little kid who believes in monsters he's like oh fuck i bet it was some it was a monster and they're like ah shut up kid um and he's like i'm convinced it's a monster and then some earthquake starts happening and they're like oh what's causing this and he ends up taking um, June and Yuriko to the um, to a shrine and pretty much says you know I told you I think it's a monster it's this guy here I don't have the names in front of me I apologize who you know it's probably this guy here who has been slain dormant and we need to summon this other monster over here to fight it and I just love that June and Yuriko are like yeah, yeah makes sense let's just do what this little kid says and um he summons both monsters and they go to fight and both monsters end up dying and then we have their ending narration every episode kind of plays out that way where there's like there's a mystery we don't know what's causing it we find out that it's actually monsters and then the monster fight happens really fast always amazing effects and then there's a wrap-up lesson of some sort so whether it be you know um uh marsh like we sent in one of the episodes we sent a pod to mars and it got sent back to us and we never requested it back and then we find out there's these little pearls on it um these little pearls once they get warm hatch into a giant fucking slug creature and then we have to dispense of that. So there's always a mystery. Find out it's a monster, and then how we're gonna take out the monster with a, along with a wraparound and a lesson. The show's fantastic. Um, if you are a fan of something like The Twilight Zone, The X file something like that, um, and giant monsters, just shows for you. It's also got an awesome, awesome jazz score. It feels very much like the original Batman. Or the Green Hornets. I'll pipe in a little bit for you. <laughs> I, I'm i looking forward to breezing through this so I can jump in and watch Ultraman next. But this show's been a great surprise for me. And it's it's a beautiful restoration. Um, a review I read recently actually touted that he thinks it's on Criterion level with their restorations. Um, what I love about it, so not only is it in its original G, uh, Japanese 2.0 soundtrack, what I don't think gets enough love is just how good and robust the audio is on these discs. The audio is very clear. There's some great highs. Um, the the sound effects are really cleaned up and polished. It really has a high definition feel to the audio. So when I was watching it today through my through my Sony receiver and and left and right Fisher speaker channels, it sounded amazing. It sounded great, like because before when I first started watching it, I was watching off of TV speakers because I was waiting for my receiver practically blew up and I was waiting for it to get repaired and get sent back to me. So now that I actually got to watch it on the uh, with my actual receiver, I was blown away by how good it sounded. Uh, and it's actually exciting me to watch it even faster because of how good it sounded. Because like a, a good looking movie or TV show will go a long way, but if it sounds good, you've got me. If it really allows me to show off my speakers, you've got me. So that's Ultra Q. Um, It's kind of hard to talk about a TV show because it it, it is kind of repetitive. It's a show that I don't know if I could binge, but I like watching one or two a day. And just kind of throwing it on casually. It's very much got that Power Rangers vibe to it as well. Where, you know, every episode's going to kind of play around the, the sound, same format. Every so often they'll change it up to keep you on your toes. But you're going to kind of know where it's going. Um, and um, there's not many, there's no special features. The only two things that I'd consider would be is it comes with a booklet that explains everything you'd ever want to know about Ultra Q and Ultraman. Which is cool. Um, and then you get a digital copy through Movie Spree, which Movie Spree I think is a new streaming service that it looks like Mill Creek is getting involved with. So you do get a physical copy, uh, a physical copy, of any digital copy. I kind of wish the digital copy would be a, would be on something more a little more common like Voodoo or Movies Anywhere, but beggars can't be choosers. So once again, we run through everything again. First off, we had Blood Harvest. Which, from Vinegar Syndrome... Which... Sorry, first off, we had Blood Harvest from Vinegar Syndrome... Directed by Bill Rebane, Wasn't for me... Though I think it's going to have its fans... After that... Also from Vinegar Syndrome... We had Hell Comes to Town, Directed by R.J. Kaiser and Donald G. Jackson... Fucking loved it... It's a must buy... Um, Toys are Not... Next we had from Arrow Video... We had Toys or Not for Children... By Stanley H. Brasloff... Wasn't for me... Really, really well put together disc. uh disc, though, um, amazing special features. Really, really good. So, highly recommend. Even though I didn't really enjoy the movie, and then we have Ultra Q from Mill Creek, season one. If you are a kaiju fan, it's a must own. Point blank. Um, thanks for listening, guys. I'll be back soon. I've got a couple. More, I've got a lot of vinegar syndrome to review. I still have a couple. Um, Mill Creek things, like I still have to do Ultraman, Um, I got Roxanne, uh, and then I do have a couple Arrow titles that I want to review, I've got The Man of a Thousand Faces, which might end up being a written review for ghastly Grinning because I honestly think it's time for this film to have a resurgence and I'd love to do a little bit of I'd love to do a piece on Lon Chaney so I think I might write that one we'll see and then I also have Arrow's new edition of um An American Werewolf in London which I'm excited for. So thanks for listening guys I love you all I love you every day of the week um if there's anything specific you'd like me to talk about hit me up as always, like, rate, like, rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Though iTunes helps us out the most. And if you're not down with that, I got two words for you: watch movies.